recording we're we're good thanks so um and then if one of you colleagues could keep admitting people while i get us started i yeah so welcome back uh and welcome if you're joining us for the very first time we had a couple late people sign up just the other day having heard rumors of uh the brilliant teachings and uh the great group feel they've they've joined us welcome if you're joining us for the first time and let me just give a couple words to kind of remind people of where we are and if you're if you're brand new today sort of yeah where where we started when we first met on saturday we're in the middle uh we've just begun exploring majima nikaya 22 uh with a theme that we're calling um, skillful use of the Buddha's teachings. And to just set the place, we've met in the opening scenes of the of this wonderful sutta, Aritta. And in Aritta, Aritta is a person who seems to have grasped hold of the teachings by the wrong end. He's, he's be, a, a pernicious view has arisen in Aritta, we're told. And in Aritta, I think, on Saturday, some of us, I'll speak for myself, recognized ourselves. Aritta is kind of like us. He's grasped onto a view strongly related to um, um, a sense of self, and uh, he's clung to this view, um, even though both his colleagues in the practice, his, his uh, Dharma friends, and the Buddha have, have tried to sort of shake him from this, this view. Um, in it, we recognize, I think, ourselves, a sense to which we're sometimes find that we want look for exceptions, how a particular clinging to a practice, a behavior, a set of thoughts, we don't have to give up to be free. And uh, we, in particular, in this sutta, explore sort of the attraction of uh, the mind's attractions, the body's attractions, the sensual delights, and how those can be... Um, be uh, dangerous. Ying showed us uh, in the second part of the teachings, just that it's clinging to these pleasures and the delights that they provide, not them in themselves. It's not inherent in these experiences, but in the way we meet them and hold them, that suffering arises and that freedom can be found. So that's, that's our place setting. We wanted to begin by asking if there are any questions, uh, any reflections, anything that's come up in the last few days. And uh, we ask that people use the little Zoom um, protocol for raising your hand, which you can find in any number of places, the three dots by your image to up to the right of your image, the participants panel, and also in the reactions button, depending on which version of Zoom you're enjoying. Um, so any questions, any thoughts as we get started today? Anything brought forward from the homework that we assigned? And since nobody's jumping up, um, feel free to just unmute and ask a question if you've got one too, or shake a hand around. We have just a couple screens and we can keep an eye on them, but uh, feel free to just ask a question if you've got one. We're a small manageable group there we go nicholas has done both i'll break the silence um one thing i've been reflecting on is in the in the context of the similes we're about to discuss is uh 
like taking a concrete example. So let's say I want to listen to a Dharma talk and reflecting on where, where am I coming from in that? And it seems to me, and I'm sure we can talk about this the whole session is um, there are kind of three parts to it. There's the intention or the conditions that cause me to want to listen to the Dharma talk. There's kind of the conditions of how I go about engaging with the talk and the content of the talk. And then there's kind of the consequence on, on the practice for me after the talk. And so it's been interesting to kind of think about what is wholesome and unwholesome in each of those. And it feels like the Buddha is really pointing to the, the urgency of the final thing, which is, is, is the final consequence on my practice wholesome or unwholesome? And then thinking about how the rest of those kind of conditions feed into whether or not that will come to pass. Um, so I was just curious for any, to maybe just put that out there to see how it lands as we keep talking. Yeah. That's nice. And uh, I'm going to pass it to teaching colleagues. Uh, I was distracted there by a chat, somebody who can't be with us today because they're feeling unwell. But I think one thing you sort of kind of point out a little bit, Nicholas, is just that, um, and we touched on this on Saturday, and I sort of left it out as of that brief summary and review, which is in this path of practice, as we'll see as we move through these similes, there are skillful uses, uses of views and of self and selfing. And so some of what you describe evokes that, you know, the aspirations we have for our well-being, for the well-being of others, some of our deepest motivations, you know, are, are part of the path too. And that, that'll, we'll unravel and unwrap that as we go forward. But because I was distracted, I may not have got the whole question. Kim, Ying, Diana? Maybe I'll, oh, Ying, you're unmuted. Ying, oh, go ahead, Diana. We haven't heard too much. <laughs> No, I was uh, appreciating something that Nicholas was pointing out, that uh, a teaching of the Buddha to reflect on, is it wholesome, unwholesome, before, during, and after. And of course, I think now I don't remember if it's Majjhima 61, 60, or 62, but one of those in the teachings to Rahula. So thank you for bringing that in, before, during, and after. It's not just a one-time thing. Is this wholesome or not wholesome? Yeah, and I see, uh, Kevin, you have your yellow hand up, and then Steve is indicating uh, he's got a question. Let's take Kevin's and see if we have time, and Steve, we hold on to that question. But Kevin, go ahead. Um, Not a question, but just a very brief comment um, at the risk of uh, encouraging unskillful papancha. Um, I um, have found... um, uh, going to Sutta Central and reading some of the other translations of the Sutta, in particular uh, Bhikkhu um, Sujatos, to be really enriching. Um, and uh, just wanted to mention that for, for those who, like myself and unlike many of you instructors, don't know the Pali and um, benefit from the resonance of multiple translations. Appreciate that reference. And yeah, if people, uh, I think we've made in previous classes, people aware of Sutta Central and its, its manifold wonders. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll provide that reference. And uh, yeah, um, you know, it's interesting to see different translations. And I think that's part of the way we construct our own language and lexicon of practice. We don't just make up any old path, but we do make the path our own. And that's one of the ways we do it. Um, Steve, quick question. Quick question, maybe off the topic slightly, but Nicholas, I think he implied or even stated that intentions are 
conditions or the result of conditions. And I hadn't actually thought about intentions that way. Is that the case? Because that would sort of give a very strong uh, argument for total predetermination, which is maybe a little bit off the topic. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's always dangerous to ask for a quick question at the last minute. And I think what we'll do, because that is big, profound, we will get into that. So let me table that. Wonderful question. Our intentions condition and pass it to Kim, because yeah, this is, this is part of this whole question of how do views arise and, and the, the core of this sutta. So thanks for that, Steve, really stimulating. I went, whoa, and I'm going to pass it to Kim. This is also called punting. Kim. Okay, thank you. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit now about the next section, the sections in the teaching. Uh, we saw at the beginning this scene with Arita, where we saw how entrenched he was in his view about sensual pleasures not being an obstruction for those who practice. And the Buddha frequently discussed actually the relationship between desires and views. And we saw, we see this going on with Aritta. Here's just one example that I found elsewhere in the teachings. This is from the Sutta Nipata. How could one overcome one's views when led by desire stuck in what's pleasing and making up ideas of what's correct. That sounds pretty similar to what we're hearing here. So notice that it says led by desire and Aritta was called a misguided man. So he was guided by his desire and not by wisdom. So we need to look, and this is relating perhaps to Nicholas's question earlier, is what is guiding us in the uh, intentions and uh, ideas that are coming forth. So we're going to explore this further by taking a look at the sections that give this sutta its name, the simile of the snake sections, which are numbers 10 through 12 in the Bhikkhu Bodhi translation. So it starts by naming uh, a bunch of different teachings that we could learn. And I find it interesting that learning the Dharma is considered a normal first step uh, we see it in this sutta, but also in others, is that learning is considered one of the doorways um, into the Dharma. However, it does matter what we do with this learning. And in particular, after we take in or hear the information in the teaching, there are, in this case, uh, two additional steps named. There are more beyond that, but there are two named here. And they are examining the meaning of those teachings with wisdom and gaining a reflective acceptance. So let's look at these. Without doing these things, uh, this sutta says that a person has really only touched the teachings intellectually, and so they might use them, as the sutta says, only for the sake of criticizing others and for winning in debates. So it seems that Aritta had learned the teachings as a monk, but he didn't delve very deeply into them. And what he was using them for was to construct an argument about why it was okay for him to have sex as a monk, or why sense pleasures were not an obstruction more generally. So, you know, we may also have examples or experiences of this from our own life, you know, cases where um, we had not really taken something in fully, we were only at a surface level, 
I remember a practitioner telling a story about um, memorizing the Metta Sutta and reciting it while driving. It was, um, and this is, sounds nominally skillful, you know, is that you would have something to do instead of just wandering along with random thoughts while driving. So while he was driving, he would be reciting the Metta Sutta. And it happened that one day, uh, some driver nearby did something dangerous and he broke off his recitation, swore at the other driver, and then picked it right back up at the next line. And then he realized, oh, so I'm saying the Metta Sutta, but it's not really um, determining my actions at this moment. So, you know, he realized that it was, uh, there are different levels that we can be connecting with the teachings, let's say it that way. So using the teachings in this way uh, does not result in experiencing the good, um, there's potential in, in the teachings. And so the commentary says that the good consists specifically of the paths and fruits, but we could also say that it just consists of the wholesome states that come about through learning and practicing the teachings. So we just don't experience the good if we don't really take it in. And this is called a wrong grasp of the teachings. It's like grabbing a snake by the coils or the tail and it will turn around and bite, bite us somewhere. So, um, I want to talk more about that simile because it's kind of powerful, but let me just complete the simile for now with the um, positive version of it, which is what comes next in section 11. So it goes on to talk about the right grasp of the teachings. And in this case, a person learns the teachings, but then they do go on to examine the meaning with wisdom and to gain a reflective acceptance. So, this means, so let's look at this a little more carefully. We're encouraged to use wisdom uh, to discern the meaning of the teachings. And for example, that's what we're doing in these courses. You know, that's one of the ideas of what we're doing together is talking about these teachings. So what does examining with wisdom mean? In my understanding of what it means to reflect wisely, there's a, a bit of a middle way to be discerned so on the one hand, um, it's not that there's just only one exactly correct meaning of the teachings um, and that and we, we need to arrive at that. This is not a sort of a fundamentalist um, idea. There are cases where the Buddha accepts many different interpretations of things from people. However, the other extreme of saying, any interpretation is fine. My own personal truth about what I see in these teachings is automatically correct. That is also not supported. Aritta's view of the teachings was not correct and the Buddha corrected him. So there's a, some middle path um, that's uh, determined by wisdom where we arrive at a meaning of the teachings that uh, is within right view is correct for where we are on the path and correctly informs our actions and our understanding going forward. And it may, may shift over time, but it's, it's neither just one, nor is it everything. So the result of examining teachings with wisdom is that we gain this reflective acceptance. Even before we have verified the teachings with practice, remember we're all in the realm now still of engaging more at an intellectual level, even before we've verified the teachings through practice, we can come to some kind of alignment with them. And that's considered important. It's considered uh, supportive for how we end up engaging and practicing with the teachings. And again, that's probably a principle that we're using in this class. 
So then when a person does this, they're said to have a right grasp of the teachings and they do experience the good that uh, comes from learning the teachings and it will conduce to their welfare and happiness for a long time. It's like grasping a snake properly from the neck so that it can't bite you. So it's an intriguing simile. Um, this implication might be that there is a way to grasp the teachings that is harmful. Does that fit with your image of the Dharma? You know, we might have an image that says um, it automatically brings happiness and ease. Any way that a person engages with the teachings to any degree, it's got to be good and beautiful. But the snake simile might not be quite in line with that. Uh, how can we think about this? Is it surprising? Um, so I have a couple of things to offer about this, and there may be yet others. So the issue, as always, is the obstinate grasping. So we have this case where Arita is holding on to his view, even in the face of his Dharma friends and eventually the Buddha and telling him, no, 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 We've, it's been said many times that there are dangers associated with sense pleasures. And they show, if you look at the sutta, it goes through with that list of the, all the different um, similes for the sense pleasures four times. It, it gets repeated again and again. Haven't I many times said this? Um, but nonetheless, he clings to his view and it's clinging that's harmful, uh, regardless of what we're clinging to. And this is something that... Um, Diana will expound on a little bit more when we talk about the simile of the raft next. That is a point that's brought out a little bit later in the sutta. But a little bit more provocatively, I will suggest that um, the Dharma teachings are quite powerful, actually. Um, they might be dangerous if not undertaken with wisdom. Uh, awakening is not a small change to the mind-body system. Um, we're going to redo the way we see the world and we're going to um, shift how perception works and so forth. So given that, it might matter that we practice carefully and respectfully, checking that our understanding remains in line with what the Buddha taught as we go along. So I don't want you to be afraid because of this provocative idea, but I do want to put it out for consideration uh, in the end, I would say that we are meant to approach the teachings with a genuine, sincere wish to understand them. All we have to do then is stay with that sincerity and not fall into other agendas like Arita did, and it'll be okay. So there's this um, respect and sincerity that's implied here that we didn't see in Arita, and which has something to do with the you know, conducing to our good and welfare. So these sections on the simile of the snake end on a positive note. In section 12, it says that the Buddha reminds people that if um, there's uh, uncertainty about the understanding and the teachings, it's possible to go and ask the Buddha or some other wise practitioner. So we're encouraged to uh, check on our understanding or you know, explored in more detail with others. So there is help, you know, there is help in this process of trying to get a right grasp on the teachings. 
And then I also think that when we actually begin to practice with the teachings, um, there are other self-correcting mechanisms that come in specifically through mindfulness. You know, we gain the ability to begin to feel for ourselves in our heart, in our body, in our mind, whether or not uh, the way we're engaging with the teachings is actually leading toward or away from suffering for us, which is the, we'll talk again later, that is the ultimate criterion is whether or not suffering is being addressed and reduced. So we gain access to some experiential wisdom that helps a lot in discerning how to hold and use these teachings. So we have spiritual friends, we have teachers, and we have practice itself as means to progress on the path and to keep our understanding in the realm of right view. So rather than taking a purely intellectual or a merely casual approach to the teachings, we can engage in them with respect and care and wisdom so that they will bear their full fruits. I think this is what's being pointed to with this simile of the snake. But we'll have a chance to talk about that more among yourselves coming up next and, and also we'll um, have a chance for questions later. So I'll pass it along to David to um, help us get set, set up for the breakout groups. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, so let's spend a little time in the breakout groups with this, with, with holding this simile of the snake in mind as we answer this question with one another, which is, how do we know, how do you know that you've got a hold of the right end of the teachings? How do you know that you have a, a wise grasp of the teachings? And um, given that we come together in large part as an exercise of, of study, you know, that's half of this work, uh, the study and practice part, uh, I think particularly addressing this question of how do you know, maybe in the body and elsewhere, whether you've got the teachings by the, by the right end? Because it's very easy, like Aritta does, to rationalize, justify, bring our intellectual power to convince ourselves that somehow we're exceptions um, and thus end up not only grasping the wrong end, but holding on tight. So the breakout rooms are set up. Uh, I think everybody uh, has heard this instruction, but this is an exercise largely in listening. Um, share not everything maybe you know, maybe go around in a circle. You can begin again. Why don't, you, why don't we begin with whoever's name starts with the first letter? That seems pretty random. Or number, if somebody's in your group is coming in with a number. Um, and just kind of go around in a circle and spiral and see what comes up. And, uh, you know, listen, listen carefully to your, to your uh, Dharma friends, your spiritual friends in the past. Somebody's asked first or last name. Excellent question. Let's go with whatever name first appears on the screen. In my case, I'd be D. Um, so enjoy. We'll be doing this for about 12 minutes. And uh, you'll automatically go to a group and automatically come back. So... Yeah. How do you know that you're practicing wisely, that you have the teachings by the right end, that you're, uh, and where does that knowledge come from, that sense of understanding that this is right, this leads towards freedom? Till soon. Welcome back. I think that's all of us. Yeah. All 40 of us, and even... An even number, the great 40, comes to mind, another sutta. Um, 
So I hope that was, um, I hope that was both enjoyable and maybe instructive to think about how we know when we're, when we're, you know, on the path or when we've grasped the teachings in a useful way or when we're making skillful uses of the teachings. I'm curious what sort of, any reflections, anybody know? Everybody's face looks very clear and at ease and it makes me think we all know sometimes, (laughs) you know, really deeply. If we're radically honest with ourselves, maybe we do know when we're holding the teachings in a, in a, in a skillful way. Um, any thoughts, any questions come up? Um, anybody have the answer to share with all of us? And then we're all can benefit. Again, feel free to raise your hand using the, uh, the Zoom protocol. And if you don't know how to do that, no problem. Wave your hand about, we'll find you. Or yeah, what came up? Chris. You know, it's hard for me to keep my mouth shut, so I'm just going to go for it here. But what really came up with our group was a sense of an embodied wisdom that starts to rise with practice. Um, That we really, with that embodied sense of how am I feeling tense right now? How am I grasping or pulling? and and, And also sharing this wisdom with others within the Sangha of how we work and feel that is just really rewarding and offers out a, an intense faith for us to continue to practice. Nice, Chris, that's wonderful. And you echo something Kim said, which is that among the rafts to foreshadow, but among the supports to practice is this community of practice, you know, this right here and all the relationships we develop and cultivate with you know, companions in the, in the practice. So thanks. Beautifully put. Um, Charles Lee. Ah, yes. Let's see. There's somebody redoing their driveway. Sorry. Um, I'll try and speak loudly. Uh, for me, uh, what came up was a, a beautiful re- reflection from uh, one of uh, the, one of our quartet members. Uh, which is a really a feeling in the body, and uh, and uh, and uh, it's. Uh, I was just playing a little guitar this morning because uh, my uh, daughter was having a tough morning, and it's uh, it's like it's like playing the right note, or it's like being in tune, um, or you know I play sports a lot too, so baseball or golf, you know, really, you know, when you hit the ball and you know, you hit the sweet part of the bat and it's just, you know, it, there's just this resonance through the entire system. Uh, and that's when I know that, uh, you know, it's that verified faith again, that, you know, it just, it's just, it's pure. Thanks. Beautiful. Uh, well, so well put, Charles Lee. And I think the two things you mentioned, playing music and playing sport, I can't speak to the latter very much, but these are powerful ways, you know, that we do recognize uh, truths in the body and particularly that what it feels like to be well attuned to the moment, right? To be thoroughly in and connected, not a flow state, you know, but a a state of uh, alert, you know, attention. So nice. Um, 
Any, any other teacher want to add anything? I don't want to fill up this space. I don't, anybody else want to add anything to what Chris and Charles Lee have, have shared so far? Yeah, I'll just say, yeah, this uh, kind of tuning in into the body. And then there's just this many different ways of knowing that we haven't tapped into. And so when we kind of really open ourselves up to the body and different um, capacities that um, may be hidden when we were kind of busy debating and criticizing, <laughs> analyzing in our head. And so many different ways of um, wisdom and intelligence can bubble up. So it's a, and it's what Kim was also saying, and that um, um, we can kind of uh, get narrowed down um, if we're just using one particular capacity alone, analyzing and intellectual. It's a great capacity. It's a wonderful capacity. And, but this opening can allow us to um, cultivate different ways of knowing. So thank you for sharing this. And maybe I'll add something um, from a class that the four of us taught. Um, gee, I, you know, I don't remember exactly where it was, but about the Kalama Sutta. And that is where the Buddha is reminding the Kalamas like how to know which teachings to follow. Part of what he is saying is whether it's censored by the wise or not. So what do people that you respect and believe have some degree of freedom or awakening or spiritual maturity? What do they say about it? That might also be um, something that we could add to how we find our way with the teachings. Nice. And, you know, I'll just say this again, waiting for another hand to appear. Um, but uh, just back to Charles Lee's comment, um, you know, this idea, particularly if you have ever played a musical instrument and knowing the sense of, of being in tune, this, this is a metaphor that turns up, a simile that turns up elsewhere in the suttas. Uh, but, you know, in the title of this class, we say skillful use of the Buddhist teachings, but an entirely legitimate translation of the same word for skillful would be well attuned. So, you know, developing a language that works for you, if skillful sometimes slides by well-attuned, particularly because this experience that hopefully came unpacked in the breakout rooms of just investigating how do we know where the path is, particularly when we've fallen off it, like we're holding on to a view. How do we know where, which way leads to freedom? We got to pay very close attention and be very well-attuned to the experience that arises, particularly in the body. So... David, a couple more questions, and then we'll, we'll have a guided meditation. David. So I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing. I don't know if I understood you correctly, but I thought I heard you distinguish flow from a mindful presence. And I'm uh, wondering why you would do that. Because when I think of music and sports, I don't think we're not being mindful, but um, I do think we're, when it works, we're in a state of flow. And there recently was, I, I was made aware of a study about golfers. When they asked them to be mindful of an aspect of their swing, they were, they were terrible. They performed professional golfers less well. 
So I, I was just wondering if you could address that. Yeah, um, only very briefly, but yeah, I think there's some, um, probably some debate, but I think there's a distinction to be made between the flow state as described by the Swiss uh, scholar and uh, philosopher scientist with the, I want to say for me, unpronounceable name, unless I look it up. Um, but, um, and, and the sort of, you know, a state of mindful awareness. And the big one with sports and music is, is there's a, is there's an activity that you're engaged in. There's a set of conditions you're relying on that's different from the meditative practice of sort of, um, you know, sitting without anything but the breath and with bodily experience. Nonetheless, you know, we use these terms, particularly colloquial with a lot of overlap. And so I'm not sure um, that it's a super important, you know. Well, uh, maybe I'll, I'll yeah. add something. Thanks. That we might imagine, I haven't done this, but we might imagine that a sniper is in a flow state when they're concentrated and, you know, they've been trained to do this. And we don't want to say that it's just whenever you're concentrated doing something, then that's the same as, you know, something that's associated with the Dharma, that there's a context and a kind of sila is part of it as well. I'm sorry. I was very quickly looking up the name of the scholar in Wikipedia and listening to the pronunciation of his name. I still can't do it. So it's going to have to wait at any rate. All respects and deep bows. Can you say it? It's like Chermanowski or something, but I'm, I'm, I'm butchering it. Hylie or something like that. There you go. Anybody can say it? Debbie. Chick sent me high. Chick sent me high. Thank you. And I, I apologize for not having it right at my finger. My tongue oh. Chick saw me high. I'm even then not, probably not doing it justice. Um, great. Good. But Debbie had a Debbie, hand did up. you have your hand up? No, okay. it's, it's okay. It's She's saying it's no. And, uh, okay. Oh, yeah, so. Well, we could, we could come back to um, uh, Steve's question about whether or not intention is conditioned. Um, the short answer, just so that we have a satisfactory response, is that, yes, it is actually conditioned. And that does not mean predestination. So we'll put that as um, something to ponder, something to wisely reflect upon. Yeah. Right. And the thing I didn't, didn't feel there was time for too there was just that it's very easy when we recognize that, um, that intention is conditioned to all of a sudden find ourselves inside of a Greco-Roman philosophical free will kind of place. And so that's a whole, you know, longer conversation at any rate. Ying. Okay. Sure. Yeah. And I'll just say,